a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, this is John Barnard, and you are listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Grid. I'm Tom Clarkson, and I'd like to begin this week's show by sending my condolences to the family and friends of Sir Sterling Moss, who died on Easter Day, aged 90. Mr. Motor Racing, as he was known, was a legend in the truest sense, and he's also one of the few drivers in history who had the charisma to match his incredible ability behind the wheel. We'll miss you, Sterling. Rest in peace. So what can I tell you about this week's guest? Well, he's an F1 legend of a different kind. He's someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a wee while because he was and remains a technical genius. Many of his groundbreaking innovations from the 1980s are still used in F1 today, and his pin-sharp memory provides us with a fascinating insight into the great teams and drivers of the era. I'm talking, of course, about John Barnard. John started his career with Lola in the late 60s, but it was during his stints with McLaren and Ferrari in the 80s and 90s that he achieved most of his success. He was the technical brains behind Ron Dennis's budgeting McLaren operation in the 80s when he introduced the then revolutionary carbon fibre monocoque to Formula One. He then left for Ferrari, where his headline innovation was the semi-automatic paddle shift gearbox. Now a standard part on every F1 car, but back then, completely new. Of course, he worked with many great drivers as well, such as Al Ampros, Nicky Lauda, Nigel Mansell and Michael Schumacher. And you'll learn during the course of our chat that he understood drivers well, and what made each of them quick. Even if he did turn down Ayrton Senna, stay tuned for that remarkable story. Now, due to the current quarantine regulations in the UK, this podcast had to be recorded remotely. So please forgive us if the sound quality isn't quite as rich as usual, but rest assured that the content truly is. I hope you enjoy our conversation. John, it's great to have you on the show. I hope you're keeping safe and well in these difficult times. we're fine. Thank you. Good. Now, you've had a hugely successful career and you were such an innovator, so... Let's navigate our way through it by looking at some of the key moments. And I thought I'd take you back to the first race of 1989 in Brazil to start with. You're working. <laughs> Can't forget that one. <laughs> yeah. You're working for Ferrari as yeah. technical director, and you have a brand new bit of tech on the car on that outrageously beautiful Ferrari 640. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, can you describe? that headline bit of tech? Okay. It was fundamentally an electronic shifting gearbox. Um, 
it started with an idea I had ooh, back in 87, where I frankly got fed up with trying to find a nice route for the mechanical gear change through the car. And I thought to myself, how can I get around this problem? And I knew about things like these um, high-speed uh, electro hydraulic valves that were being used uh, at the time, specifically in the aircraft industry. And I thought, what I need is, is you know, if I could just shift the, the levers in the gearbox hydraulically, and if I could operate that by pushing a button, all I've got to do is get some wires through the car to the gearbox. Hey, problem gone away with these ugly, nasty gear shifts and nasty big gear levers. So that's where we started. It was Initially, I thought about um, having a, a button on the steering wheel, shift up, one shift down. And that transpired into what everybody now calls the paddle shift. But fundamentally, it was me looking for a way around a packaging problem. In that period of time, Enzo Ferrari died, middle of 88. And along came a Fiat guy, a top boss from Fiat, who came in with the idea that he was basically going to take over from Enzo. He was going to be the next Enzo, as it were, which is obviously nonsense, but that was what was in his mind. And he was dead scared about this paddle shift gearbox. He did not want to run it because we hadn't been testing it that long. We'd had some problems um, reliability-wise, not function-wise, but reliability and he was absolutely t terrified that, you know, this thing, like we start running it in the 89 season, this thing would be a disaster and he would look stupid. And uh, so we had a huge fight over whether the 89 car was going to have it or not. And in the end, I won the fight. <laughs> how do you win, John, how do you win a fight like that? I mean, you put everything on the line, Tom. You, you, <laughs> you say, OK, my contract says... I've got full technical control of Ferrari racing, everything, engine, chassis, the lot. That's what it says here. Now, I'm exercising that control. If you don't want me to exercise that control, then you have to buy my contract out, do something, you know, whatever. That's what it took. You put your, yeah, effectively your job took. on the line. Yeah, basically, that was it. And, uh, and I said, okay, you know, if it's no, we'll run it. If it's no good, here you go. There, there's the contract. So... That's how we started. And <laughs> I have to say, no one was more surprised than we were when we won the first race. <laughs> so look, we're fast forward to that first race of 89. The new car looks beautiful. Tell me if I'm wrong, but few reliability problems leading up to the race. How confident okay. were you? <laughs> how confident were you coming into that race? Well, we were... <laughs> You're right. I mean, there were, a few, there were a few reliability problems. We'd been testing in Brazil. Uh, we used to go testing there, uh, I think, something like two or three weeks before the actual race, which didn't give you a lot of time to do things in between. So whatever happened in the test, you know, unless you were lucky and you could put your finger on something uh, specific, any problems in the test were very likely not going to get sorted out for the race. So we went there, we tested, car was running okay, it was, you know, relatively quick. Nigel Mansell was testing it, and uh, Nigel, fortunately, was pro the paddle shift gearbox. I mean, he, he helped me reinforce the fact that that's the way we were going at Ferrari, um, because going back to what I said earlier about the Fiat guy who, who was dead worried about it, the Fiat guy actually exercised his power in racing and made them produce 
a very rough mechanical shifting version of the 88 car just as a kind of a backup. It meant cutting a great hole in the side of the chassis and all sorts of horrible things. Fortunately, I never saw it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he did, he, he enforced that. Nigel took it round Fiorano, got out and said, give me the paddle shift. <laughs> Good <laughs> so that man. Was the end of that. <laughs> That's what you needed, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the advantages of the paddle, you say packaging, but was there also a, a speed element to it as well? Well, the interesting thing with the paddle, like a lot of these ideas, they start off trying to solve one problem and then you end up solving a lot more um, because the thing, you know, once you start controlling the gear shift, with a computer. You then want to control the clutch with the computer. And so then the next step is fully automatic gear shifting. The very first time we tested the 88, what we call the interim car, at a Fiat test track in northern Italy, we actually ran it in fully automatic upshift mode. We couldn't do the downshift automatically because we needed, ideally, we needed electronic throttle control, which we didn't have at the time to be able to synchronize engine revs, wheel revs, and so on. But we, on the upshift, we actually ran it fully automatically. The test driver went out and just it just went fully automatically, which just goes to show. But then once it got known and once you introduced the, the regulation guys, you know, FIA, technical people, and so on, they said, well, you can't have an automatic, but it says you can't have an automatic, so fine. So then you go back to the driver shifting, moving the paddles. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the things that are, the advantages were that the first one that somebody mentioned, I didn't even think about, was that you couldn't over rev the engine anymore because the computer said, no, 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 you can't change down now because you're going to blow the engine if you do. So it won't let you change down. Whereas in the good old days, you know, you get a lot of these drivers roaring along in sixth gear at 180 mile now, jam their foot on the brake, they want to go into first gear for a chicane. They just ram it in first gear, you know, <laughs> and you've got dog rings and valves popping out everywhere. So, <laughs> so you know, it kind of solved that one in one hit, which was pretty useful. But can, um, can, you, can you remember how quickly it would shift up, for example, at the touch of a button? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, well, the first one's obviously not as fast as the later versions, but I mean, it was still quicker than the guy could do it by hand and, and consistent, you know, consistently quicker than he can shift by hand. I can't give you milliseconds. Milliseconds, we started talking milliseconds probably a couple of years down the road, to be honest with you. And now I don't know what they shift now. Now, I believe now, the last time I spoke to my pal at um, Extract, they're, they're shifting so fast but they can actually measure the time between the dogs and the dog ring and hit it so that it fits in between the dog. I, I can't imagine it. We're talking, you know, a millisecond. I mean, it's, you know, the timing is, is incredible. But that's where they've got to. Because I said to him, I said, well, are you running a double clutch kind of arrangement like, you know, lots of the road cars have got now? No, no, he said they just bang it in. And they do it so fast that, you know, it's just, doesn't wreck the dog ring, doesn't wreck the gear. So that's how far it's come. Do you feel proud that it was you that started that journey? Yeah, I do. Um, I feel proud where a number of things that I've done seem to have been taken on board and progressed and, and they are now standard form. And I feel, yeah, I do feel proud of that. I feel 
it's kind of why I had the book written, why I got the guy to do a biography of me, uh, was because I wanted to tell the story on all these things. I wanted to tell the story of, you know, the chaparral, how I did the carbon monocoque, how I did the gearbox, all the other bits and pieces that I've introduced, flexures on suspension, all those things, because it's all very well. I mean, I've heard people in other teams say, oh, well, you know, the carbon carbon chassis, well, it was kind of obvious, really, wasn't it? You know, it was just just somebody had to do it first, and it was him kind of thing. Well, that's not the way it works, mate. When you are doing something completely different, you have to have such a commitment to that idea, and you have to be convinced so much that it is going to work that you cannot you, you just can't be deviated from it. And even though I would admit that on all of those things, I used to have, let's say, in my back pocket or in the back of my head, really, what do I do if it doesn't work? What do I do if the carbon monocoque is a real effort? You know, how do I get around it? And you kind of have an idea in the back of your head of what you might have to do but you never tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you you've got to, <laughs> you know, when you're saying you've got to have that, the, the, you've got to be so convinced in the idea. You had to take on the Fiat board, for goodness sake. Yes, in that case, I did. I mean, I remember this guy. I mean, we literally stood in the car park outside racing and basically had a full-on row. I mean, you know, it was like, <laughs> you can't start like this. I'm going to start like this. I know that's the way the car's designed. I can't, you can't do that. We can't take the risk. Blah, blah. You know, I thought, oh, God, here we go. And in that season opening race in Rio, Nigel Mansell took a surprise victory from sixth on the grid. His car and that semi-automatic gearbox lasting the course, much to everyone's surprise, including Mansell, who was so convinced that his Ferrari would break down he reportedly booked an early flight home from Rio. So, John, how was the reception after that race in Rio in 89? Were you, you must have been given a hero's <laughs> welcome back in Maranello, surely. <laughs> well, it helps. It does help. But look, you've got to remember, this is Ferrari, this is Italy. And you don't know, you cannot imagine what the press is like in Italy. So a week goes by and everything is looking great wow, maybe the gearbox is not such a bad idea after all. But then you're warming up to the next race and, you know, they're, they're looking for the little cracks and how can we get this guy? You know, I mean, first of all, he's English. He's working in England, for Christ's sake. You know, we've got to get this guy. So it all starts again. And fortunately, I, you know, I, I wasn't a great reader. <laughs> so I didn't read a lot of it. Although, of course, it was... Um, Oh, that was the other thing that happened at Ferrari. I don't think it happens now. But in those days, there used to be a PR department, and they would get a photocopy of every newspaper or magazine that had written something about Ferrari in that week, and they would staple them all together and distribute them among the workforce. So even if, they said, even if the newspaper said, you know, like, this English guy's a complete lunatic, you know, we've got to get rid of him, he's working in England, it's terrible... All that would be distributed among the workforce. And it was like every week there's a fresh, and I'm talking about, you know, a half inch thick sort of wad of, wow. of paper. I can't, I can't imagine Jean Todd let that system well, continue. I mean, you know, that's, that was long before Jean came yeah, along. I'm yeah. talking about my, my first time at Ferrari. So, you know, you've got, you're, you're, you're kind of battling that as well, which is frankly why being, in, being based in England, although I had to, I mean, I probably went there, I probably went for 
two, three days to Ferrari every 10 days, something like that as a kind of an ongoing thing, because I still had to control the people in Ferrari, you know, in Maranello. I mean, there were, a lot of the design and that uh, is, was done in their office. I mean, the, the, the gearbox section under a guy called Fosco, Fosco Di Silvestri was, you know, he fortunately, I would say he was on my side, or he appeared to be. Um, fortunately, he supported the gearbox idea. Uh, so he ran his group and, and, you know, slowly but surely, when you start to do things that are obviously better than they've had, obviously they look like a good idea and they're like they're well made, nice pieces. Slowly you win them over. You win the serious guys over. You win the guys you need to, the mechanics, the chief mechanics, the serious, you know, the, 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 more um, top-end people in the design office and so on. Slowly you get them on side and, and you know, and that's, that's what it takes. So when someone like Mauro Forgieri comes out and says, and I'm quoting him now, John, he says, John, John committed two sins in one go, moving the design from Marinello and preventing the mechanics from drinking wine at lunch. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help unless John's not a fan of Chianti. I don't know, but um. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you see, there you go. Let me take that second point first because that happened. <laughs> I should go back and explain this whole deal with Ferrari was fundamentally put together by a guy called Marco Piccinini, and Marco was a very astute, very uh, sharp guy who was Enzo's right hand man. And um, Marco did, basically, it was Marco that got me on board. And uh, pretty much straight away after I got on board, Marco's questioning me on how things are done in the English teams. And one of the questions was, what do you do at lunchtime? And I said, well, I don't know. The mechanics, they usually have a few sandwiches and a cup of coffee and they kind of you know, they might stand around their, their uh, toolboxes while they, while they drink, eat their sandwiches, drink their coffee, and then they get on with it, you know. It's like, you know, we stop, we stop practice at, what, 11 o'clock in the morning and we're qualifying at 2 o'clock. Um, you know, there's a, there's a period window there where adjustments have to be made to the car, things have to be done, fuel has to be pumped out and filled and da-da-da. So, you know, there's not much time to sit down. <laughs> that's Ferrari. With the tables laid out, with tablecloths, the bottle of wine on the table, I think when it was in Lambrusco or what it was, and they're all sitting down. And so Marco says to me, what do you do over there? And I explained all this, and he said, hmm, he said, um, what do you think we should do? You know, I said, well, I, know. I guess we should do the same thing. Leave it to me, he says. <laughs> Leave it to me. So Marco gets stuck in. Marco's going around. I, I don't know at the time because I don't speak Italian. Marco's going around saying, Mr. Barnard would like you to stop having wine at lunchtime. Mr. Barnard wants you to carry on working. So, you know, it's like, Mr. Barnard wants this. Mr. Barnard wants that. So the next thing that happens is, out come the newspapers, you know, Barnard stops wine, sort of stops okay. the wine. It was yeah. like, you know. Oh, hang on. <laughs> it's not exactly how it happened. Let's face Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's yeah, interesting. It's not me. <laughs> but hey, John, so, I suppose that was quite an insight into into Ferrari and, and what you were yeah. letting yourself into. Well, it was, yes. I mean, uh, yes. Uh, you have to remember, you see, at that time, Ferrari was 
uh, well, even until the old man died, to be honest with you, Ferrari was fundamentally an engine place. Ferrari, everything was engine first, even, you know, almost almost until the day he died, old man Ferrari, Enzo, would, would have every engine that went on the dyno and produced the dyno curves were put on his desk for him to see. When you're an engine, you know, when you're fundamentally an engine-based outfit like they were, then sort of playing with the chassis, changing a spring or changing a roll bar, it kind of doesn't mean much. You know, it's, you, you're not going to do a lot to the engine in three hours. You know, you're not going to change the valves or put different pistons in. You know, you've got the engine and that's it. So I guess it, I, my theory is that it just didn't register with them in the same way that it did with English teams who are using their chassis capabilities to do a better job than Ferrari. So it was the English chassis that were beating effectively the Ferrari engine. Now, that kind of changed because Enzo realized that. And after I'd won three driver's championships, two constructors with McLaren in the 80s, Enzo obviously said, we need to do something about our chassis because we're now we're talking not, we're talking not just suspension and sh- chassis construction we're talking aerodynamics when i say chassis i include aerodynamics and we were steaming ahead in britain on aerodynamics way 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 more than ferrari were so enzo's realized that and said to himself or said to somebody we better get whoever you know knows what they're doing in this subject here's the guy that's just won three drivers and two constructors we need him and what impression Uh, did he make on you john because you met him in marinello didn't you were you given the full the full treatment? Come to mm. Maranello, meet the oh, boss. Oh yeah, I mean, I was lunch given... in there. What the Montana, the Cavallino? I can't think where you. Oh no, I had the private plane from Heathrow. Didn't <laughs> oh, I? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> I had the Falcon. I had the Falcon nine hundred straight into Bologna. You know, no passports. Don't worry about that. You got the customs guy meet you in a car, takes you out, takes you across the tarmac. You know, God dear, oh dear, you don't worry about. <laughs> <laughs> we know who you are, you know. <laughs> Come to Ferrari, you know. You don't need to say any more than that. So yeah, oh, yeah. I got the full treatment, the full works, and uh, the funny thing was, I got taken back to racing from the the airfield and uh, driving down. In those days, used to be a little side road, just ordinary houses down it, and at the end were the red gates of racing. And you you would drive down this little side road, and you go in through the red gate. It's not like that anymore, but. There was a guy down by the red gates with a camera. And I said, I think I was, who was I with? I might have been with Marco. I said, well, who's that guy then? I spoke, I thought this was all supposed to be dead hush hush. Oh, don't worry about him. He's just a local, you know, he's just a local enthusiast. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, he's bloody paparazzi, isn't he? So um, anyway, that's how it started. And, and was uh, there a picture in Gazetta the next day? To be honest, I can't remember. I probably ne- I wouldn't have seen it because I would have been back in England. I went out and back on the same day. You know, it was a it was a turnaround job. But um, no, I I went. Uh, let's see what happened that day. Oh, I remember now. We went to the Cavallino. We went to the old man's private room in the back, and um, we had all sorts of people. Marco was there, and Piero Lardi Ferrari was there, uh, the old man's um, son. And then he got uh, people. I can't remember. It was people like Scaglietti, and you know the names that were like just so way out there you know and you and there you are sitting there having lunch with these guys and the tv's on in the corner and the old man's looking at the tv most of the time 
and you just think this is surreal. I mean, here I am, you know, there's this sort of Joe Blow from nowhere, and I'm sitting with these names that are people across the world. You know, when you say Gaglietti or something, they go, oh. yeah, you know, yeah. things like this. And here we are sitting having lunch together. It was a bit surreal, but um, Enzo was, um, how shall I describe it? He knew how to work people, I would say, because he he tended to put people against each other to see who was going to win. You know what I mean? It was kind of a, you know, do or die kind of approach. But yeah, he, difficult to say really what he was like, because until you can talk to the guy, it's hard to say. But he had an aura, you know, you went in the office and it wasn't a fancy office. You went in his office, he's sitting behind the desk with his dark glasses on. And if you're anything, anything to do with racing, you're standing there shaking hands with a guy who fundamentally is motor racing. You know, it's like Formula One. You know, everybody complains about Ferrari and Formula One. Ferrari have too much political clout in Formula One. Yeah, they do. They do. Why? Because of Enzo. You know, and if you go back, I mean, if you said today, uh, oh, Ferrari are withdrawing from Formula One, it would not be the same. It would not be the same world championship. They are super powerful. They are super historic. They are just, you know, and there's this guy that's created it all. I mean, you know, you have to say you must be a fantastic guy one way or the other. Good, bad, probably got a nasty streak in them. Most of these people that are super successful have got a, I would say, an unpleasant side to them because you don't make it otherwise. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you look back and you think, wow. <laughs> and you were his last technical boss that he that he signed personally, I suppose. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 indeed. He came out of his, I mean, he, in those days, he was, he, don't forget, he died in the middle of 88. And I'm talking 87 now, end of 87, beginning of 88, uh, when we finished the, what we call the Type 639, the, the, the unraced 88 version. He actually came out of his office with his stick and came out to the workshop to see this thing. And he kind of looked at it and just kind of had a grin and shook his head. You know, he's like, I knew this guy would do something different. <laughs> well, so talking of doing things differently, John, how did he react when you said, I think I'd like to do this from Shalford, from Southeast England and not Maranello? I didn't Maranello. say that. I'm going to say, can you talk us through how, how that happened? Yeah. I'll go back because I'm at, I'm at McLaren. This is 86 and I'm getting through uh, to the, I don't know, middle of the year. I start getting phone calls from a guy in London who is saying things like, oh, there's a, there's a team in Europe <laughs> who, would like to, who would like you to work for them. And my answer is very simple. Thanks very much. I don't want to go to Europe. And this goes on for a few weeks. And then eventually... Is he any more specific or is it just a team in Europe? No, that's how he started, a team in Europe. So you go through, right, well, of course, there's Ferrari, but I think then there was Alpha. There was also, I believe, Matra still at the time. Teams like ATS, you know, the German the crazy guy from ATS. And uh, so, you know, theoretically, there are those options. And uh, you start out like this, and then eventually it's pretty obvious it's Ferrari. And then he says, come and meet somebody in London. I have an apartment in London. Come and meet this person. I go to London. I think, okay, no, no I'm done. Go and see who it is. Go and meet them. Of course, it's Marco Piccinini, so then it's straight out. But even then, I was not predisposed to do it. They'd been throwing numbers at me, you know, sort of 
big paycheck numbers and so on, but I didn't want to do it. And then eventually they came back. Marco came back and said, what about if you could set up something in England? And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. That's a different take. So it was actually then that suggested setting something. I think I ended up setting more up in England than they anticipated because I think they just assumed, oh, he's just going to want a drawing office with a couple of guys and, and a, a few drawing boards, you know. And as it turned out, I produced a whole factory <laughs> with a fantastic composite facility, pretty decent machine shop, fabrication shop. So we made, in those days, we were making the chassis, the suspension, you know, all that, all that stuff, the bodywork, and that was made in Maranello. But, uh, yeah, we were making all the serious bits, basically because I didn't trust anybody. I didn't trust people to do the composites. How did that affect your relationship with people in Maranello? When you um, turned up at a race, was there a bit of an atmosphere or, or did you oh, just... Yes, absolutely. I mean, great suspicion. Um, and you've always got, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're doing, but there's always the fallback situation of, well, it's not done here. That bit was done over there. This bit, you know, and they say, oh, that bit was done over there. And we say, oh, that bit was done over there. And this goes on. I don't care who you are. That goes on. And that always, if you have a problem, then it's very easy to start, immediately start looking at the other lot and say, I think that's their problem. You know, I think that's it. As it turned out, I was in the first time at Ferrari, not the second, but the first time at Ferrari, I was fully in charge technically. So it didn't matter where the problem was. I had to find it and fix it, whether it was there or here. So, you know, that, that was just, I had to fix it. Let's talk about the second stint yeah. at, at, at Marino as well. You, you went to Benetton, which we'll come to later, but yeah. what made you go back for a second crack, I can understand the lure of Ferrari and wanting to try yeah. and win races with them to go yeah. back again. I got talked to um, by Nicky. Nicky was helping Monte Zimmler at the time. And uh, Nicky kind of phoned me up, talked to me and said, oh, you need to come and speak to Monte Zimmler. So I went over there and had a talk. And um, the thing was that, well, we all met in a London hotel. Don't forget, at the time, Harvey Potterway had gone back to Ferrari. So Harvey was there at the time. This is 1992. Yeah, early 92, I'm talking about. And we all met up in the hotel. And I said to Monty, I said, look, the problem is we know that I cannot effectively run racing from UK. Right. We tried that. That was the last time I was fully in charge. It was not easy. Yes, okay, we did, you know, we had some success. And if they played their cards right, 91, I could have carried on and they could have perhaps won the championship. But anyway, that's the way it went. Um, so I said, I can't run it from England. But what I can do, I could set up a facility where we would design and, say, wind tunnel test the next car. So it would be effectively a group looking at the next car you with Harvey race the chassis that's, you know, the current chassis and modify it and do what you have to do in Maranello. So that, that way we can have this group, which is not required to be on top of racing all the time. And that's theoretically how the second deal was supposed to be set up. Now, <laughs> that lasted about, I don't know, 
once we signed up, and I'm talking about August 92. On it. Of course, the other thing was classic Ferrari. They'd just gone and sold the first facility that I'd set up first time at Ferrari. They'd just gone and sold it to McLaren. Because, <laughs> of all because, the people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because McLaren were looking for somewhere to produce the road car, the F1 road car. And I said, I remember saying to Monty Similar, I mean, you know, we were, we were talking about things. And this is the end of, I'm talking sort of end of 91, early 92. I said, look, if you respectfully take my advice, you will not sell it to McLaren. Because if you do that, you're fixing all their problems in one go. I know they are desperate to find somewhere to do this road car, to make the composites and find an autoclave big enough to do a sports car body and everything else. That's exactly what we've set up for you in Shalford. Anyway, I tried to make the point. It didn't register. They sold it on to McLaren. So the next thing is, six months later, they've come back to me and said, yeah, well, we think we want to do it again in England. <laughs> you can't make it up, can you? And, uh, oh, right, okay. <laughs> so we talked about this idea of setting up a, a, you know, a design and sort of development establishment. So I, I said, okay, so we, we signed up on that basis. And I said, fine, um, I, you know, I better go out and find a factory to start. <laughs> and the funny thing was, the first factory we'd set up was on a brand new high-tech estate right by the river, right near Guildford. Beautiful place, uh, beautiful outlook. A re- you know, what Ferrari needed was you know, good presence, high-end type of building, etc. So the building next to it on the estate comes available. <laughs> so I take the next door building and do it all again. <laughs> you really couldn't make it up. You're right. <laughs> and it's like, this is unreal. <laughs> so that's what happened. We set, up, we set up what we then called, the first one was called GTO, uh, which was short for Guildford Technical Office, <laughs> as opposed to GTO car. Uh, and the second one was called FDD, which was Ferrari Design and Development. And uh, it was next door. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It was almost back to where I started in the first time, but without the clout of saying, of having in my contract that I was technical director of the whole thing. I was now only technical director of FDD in England and theoretically had no real power in Maranello. As it turned out, you know, everybody was sort of turned around and looked at me and it was like everybody standing there looking at me saying what do we do uh so i had to step forward john did you enjoy the interaction with the drivers with burger and alacy and getting in the garage and getting their feedback did the when the start lights are going out did that still excite you at that point um i did I did enjoy the interaction with the drivers. I would say that as it, as time went on, I had more interaction. If I go back to the chaparral, I'm talking the mid-70s, I had a really close relationship with the drivers. You had to have because you didn't have onboard telemetry of any kind at the, then. So you had to have a good rapport with the driver. You had to know what he was trying to get out of the car and you had to be able to fix it so that he could get that. And as time went on, I mean, I had the same thing at McLaren in the early days, uh, the early, not, not my first time at McLaren team, McLaren, but that was real early 70s. But back in the, in the Ron days, when Ron and I started the McLaren International, I had a pretty close relationship then, certainly with John Watson. 
and uh, and then Nikki came along, and so you know you build up the relationship with Nikki, and then Prosty comes along, and that was another whole step because he was just so good at relaying information about the car and the tires. And then as I went to Ferrari, because I'm now I'm a big boss of a bigger operation, I kind of had to step back a bit and allow the race engineers to deal directly with the driver much more. And I would kind of sit on top of that little pyramid and try and steer things like that. And so because of your position, you kind of get drawn away from that direct contact. But I did enjoy that. I did really enjoy working with, you know, other guys. I mean, it's Al Anser and, uh, I mean, Nigel to some degree, although not, not so much. Um, but, you know, Alasi and Berger, they were there when I, uh, no, Berger came to Ferrari after I went back the second time. The first one there was Alberto and Alasi, I think it was, and then Berger and Alasi. And um, I got on very well with Gerhard. I got on well with Jean, but Jean Alasi was much more of a, he was kind of what I call an old school driver. He was a get in and drive it as hard as I can bloody drive it, you know, and that's, that's going to be as fast as it goes kind of thing, you know. Gerhard was much more about trying to sort the car, trying to get it better, trying to work on it, get it better. But I would say that Gerhard's problem was he didn't always pick the right areas to work on, you know. He would be bothered by something that you would eventually fix, but he didn't actually make the car go any faster. So they had to be able to sort out where the car wasn't quick enough, never mind whether it was uncomfortable in this bit or not. It was about what made it quicker. And um, Gerhard was was good. He was prepared to sit and give you a lot of feedback, but you had to steer him very carefully until his, you know, what he was looking at. Jean, as I say, Jean was a great guy, lovely guy, naturally talented, fast driver, but really only interested in getting in and pedaling it as hard as he could buddy pedal it, and that was it. And if, if it didn't work after that, he was like, "Forget it. I've done all I can," you know. <laughs> and then at the end of '95. Schumacher yeah. comes and I remember he had his first test at Estoril and I think he That's said some right. very complimentary things about the car. Yeah. And were right. you at that test? Yes. What sort of impression did Michael make? Um, well, he tested the 95 car, both with the V12 and the, and we had a, what we call a mule um, with the then brand new V10 installed in, in another car, identical car, but one with a V12, one with a V10. And it was very interesting to me because, first of all, he was super quick in the V12 car and actually said to me, wow, I could have won the championship easier with this car than I did in the Benetton. So, you know, that was his comment. I mean, you know, take it, take it for what it's worth, but that was a comment. So you think, okay, that's pretty good. You know, that we're not too far away. Then he gets in the V10 car and he's driving the V10 and he doesn't like it as much. I said, what's the problem, Michael? What, what, why don't you like it? Because it doesn't have the engine braking that the V12's got. No, that's because it's a better engine. It's more efficient. It's got less drag inside the engine. Yes, but that's how I drive it around the corner. What do you mean? Well, when I go into a corner, I balance the car on the throttle. So when I lift off, and if I've got engine drag, I can bring the background on the car and I put my foot down and I can pull it back. I can bring it, I can play with it on the throttle. I can't do that with the V10 because when I lift off, I don't get the same reaction. Wow. Okay. Now this is, this comment is now 180 degrees 
different to what Berger and Malaysia have been telling us for the last year or two. They've been saying the problem with the V12 is in a high-speed corner, I lift off and the engine unbalances the car. The engine unsettles the car because there's so much braking from the engine. So we're now faced with a, <laughs> with a guy who is world champion, blindingly quick, and wants it completely different. <laughs> And you kind of want to go away to the garage and smack your head against the wall and think, Jesus Christ, you know, what do we do now? Um, but what happened was, I mean, I would say, I would say I tried to speak to Michael and I tried to put across my viewpoint that for me, the way the car is quick is if you can plant the back end, if I can give you absolute maximum traction at the back at all times, you can open the throttle sooner and you will be quicker. Now, Michael didn't, want, didn't drive like that. Michael drove what I call off the front of the car. He wanted a front end, but absolutely just turn the wheel and bang into the corner. And he would kind of look after the back. All the other guys are saying, yeah, but we don't like that because when we do that, then the back end comes round. And I just remember going back to John Watson. John was the one that said to me, if I've got a car that's really nailed at the back, I can use it hard. He said, the problem with doing that, the problem with nailing it hard at the back is you've got to get around the understeer because inevitably, if you really nail the car aerodynamically with springs, roll bars, whatever, so the back is fantastic, you've then got to stop it understeering. And that's where we, that was like the 84 turbo car that was a fabulous car, won, won lots of races. and. Prosty was the past master of getting around that initial little bit of understeer. He would just, just for that fraction, I, I don't, I can't explain where he breaks or how he breaks or what he does, but he is able to just get the front to turn in when all the others say understeer, understeer in, can't deal with it. Prosty gets around it. He's got the throttle open way before these other guys. And with a turbo engine, that's super critical. So he's, he's like lightning. Frosty's off, gone. You know, Nicky then had to figure out how he was going to get to be as quick as Prost. And uh, I remember Nicky saying to me one time, because oh, nearly every qualifying, Prosty was quicker than Nicky. And sometimes by sort of half a second. And Nicky would say to me, you know, I said, uh, I cannot understand how that little... He's always half a second quicker than me. I must work it out. He said, I must work out what he does. <laughs> and that was Nicky, you know. I mean, he, he, he did. I mean, he was, you know, he, he, was, uh, he was quite interesting. Again, you see, we don't have, we're talking days when we didn't have telemetry. We didn't have all these TV screens full of information about everything on the car. So it had to be done by driver feedback. John, what a fascinating insight into different driving styles, different approaches. Different... But you've also yeah. listed, actually, uh, an incredible array of drivers that you work with during your career. I mean, Alain Prost, as you say, Nicky Lauda, Nigel Mansell. Yeah. And if I was to include Schumacher, I know, who <laughs> difficult question, who yeah. was the best driver you worked with? Oh, for me, the best driver was Alain, Alain Prost, without a shadow. Nigel was quick but he was quick because he got big cojones basically you know michael was quick 
But as I say, I, I didn't like the way he had the car set up. For me, it wasn't the way to go. And I, and I would love to have been a fly on the wall when he drove for uh, Braun, was it? Alongside the early Prosper. Mercedes years, along the, yeah, 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 2010. Yeah. And because he quite often was nowhere near as quick as Rosberg then. And I thought, that, that, this is strange, you know, there's something going on here. My theory, and it is only my theory, that Rosberg was like most of the guys who wants a car that's nicely planted at the back and then will find a way to get as best he can around the understeer. Michael didn't like that. And when they did set the car up for Michael, he was quicker than Rosberg, but he wasn't overall quick. And so I don't know, but I just think that Michael's approach to it was, it was good when he was young because he had, his, his reactions were phenomenal. But as he got a bit older, I'm not sure that that system worked so well. So in terms of drivers, Alan at the top, I never actually worked with Senna. You know, I, I spoke to Ayrton on a number of times, but I never worked with him, so I couldn't say. I mean, Nicky, obviously. Uh, although Nicky's, Nicky, I don't think Nicky had the natural speed. I think everything he did, he worked at, worked out in his head how he was going to get there. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to pin them down. I mean, you know, I'll go back to Mario Andretti. I worked with Mario for a while. But all these guys, it was hard to find their, what should we say, their car input. Because for me, certainly in Formula One, it's the driver's input to what he wants from the car that's very, very important, not just whether he's a quick driver or not. And I suspect that's where, I don't know, but I suspect that's where Lewis Hamilton has got today. He's really understood the car and gets a lot of feedback from his engineers and gives them a lot of feedback. And um, I mean, he's now developed, well, I mean, he's another, I've not worked with him, but he's obviously right up there in, in the driver's stakes. But of course, if you go back, I mean, I never worked with Clark, but he's the one that I always look back to and think that's the guy I needed to work with. He's the one that impresses me because he drove everything. You know, he just, he just drove everything and he was just super, super quick in everything. So, you know, you, these guys today, they're not, they don't do that. You know, they drive one car and that's it, one car a year. So um, I, have to, I have to go back there and say those guys are the ones that really get me. Well, look, can we talk about one other of your cars? Um, we, we've touched on it earlier on, but another key moment in your career was Silverstone 81. It was yeah. the first win for a carbon fiber chassis. Um, yeah. Now, your cars won 31 races for McLaren. Was this okay. the most important win? It was important from the point of view of sealing our sponsorship with Philip Morris, to be honest with you. Ron, in typical Ron fashion, Ron had talked to Hogan, who was our John Hogan, who was the sort of Philip Morris man who signed the checks effectively. Ron had sort of said to Hoagie before that, before 81, at the end of, of, of 1980, you know, we're going we're gonna to win, John, don't worry. You know, this is going to be the answer. This, this new carbon car, this is going to do the job. And, you know, Ron had already sold a win and, you know, whatever else. So the fact that we ended up going 3-2-1 in 1981 was a huge plus, certainly for Ron and I, in terms of the stability of the team, if you like, because, you know, Marlborough, before Marlborough brought Project 4 and Team McLaren together, Team McLaren were looking very dodgy. They could quite easily have been 
gone, you know, at the end of 1980. So, uh, so that was a huge step forward. And uh, it wasn't such a fantastic win in, the, in terms of winning by virtue of speed because the Renault turbos broke down. And we can't forget that, you know, but the fact is we were there and, you know, we were the, ne- we were the best of the rest, if you like. But then you've got races like, I mean, I have to go to like Long Beach, 1983. And there we were, we were fighting a tyre problem. We were on Michelin's. The other main team on Michelin's were Renault, who had this powerful turbo engine. So they were running this barn door of a back wing, loads of downforce. The tyre, we could not get the tyre to work with our, with our nimble little Cosworth, all light-footed and everything. We couldn't get the tyre to work. And we ended up qualifying 22 and 23 on the grid. And uh, another good story, I remember Long Beach, the start there was on a, a long, gentle curve. And if you were 22 and 23 on the gear, you were actually back round the curve. You couldn't see the starter's flag. <laughs> and I remember Ron saying to Nicky and, and um, who was it? Nicky and, and uh, Watty, I'm going to stand on the wall. And when the guy drops the flag, I'm going to drop my arm. <laughs> so you'll know when the starts. <laughs> <laughs> Did he drop it a little bit early? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it happened. And they finished. What did they finish? Was it one, two, I think? Mm. It's, um, it was an amazing just seeing them, Just seeing them mop up the field, you know, yeah. as each lap was just incredible. That will stick with me, that one. But John, that, that carbon chassis, um, how left field was it? I mean, you said earlier other people were saying, oh, it was obvious. Da, da, da. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. And not only was it not obvious, it was also questioned heavily at the beginning over safety. People did not know, well, did not understand really what the carbon would do in a big accident. And the fact that I had gone all out with this thing, I mean, I had tried to do it the absolute full out aircraft way, um, whereby I made the whole of the outer shell one piece with no joins or anything. I mean, today they, they, they make the chassis. Well, I don't know what they do right at this moment, but you know, a few years ago, those chassis were made in two halves and glued together. Um, that was all one piece, all molded on a male tool and all cured and everything as one piece. I mean, the, as near perfection as I could get to at that time. But what really did for that was in 1980. One and John Watson had his big accident at Monza where he ran over the curb, lost it. The car went across the road, hit the barrier, sheared off the gearbox, sheared off the engine from the back of the chassis. Huge, there was a, like a flash fire of oil on the exhaust. It looked horrific. All the dust settles. What he unstraps and walks out, looks around, so where's the rest of the car? You know, after that, that kind of fixed in everybody's mind that, well, actually, maybe the carbon monocoque is actually quite safe because it stayed as a unit, you know, whereas an aluminium chassis, you hit it at the end and it would end up crumpling the panels halfway down the chassis, whereas carbon composites would take the impact and would crush locally but wouldn't damage the rest of the structure. All that it force would go locally into the carbon. And so... That really sealed it, you know, that, that sealed the carbon chassis from there on. Everybody was going to have to go that way. And did it um, lay to rest any doubts you had as well, or were you completely confident 
in the safety of the car? Well, I suppose, I suppose if I'm honest, there had to be an element of doubt until you actually test it. Don't forget, I mean, this is a time before we did impact testing. We didn't do any impact testing. It relied purely on calculation and numbers. You know, I had the help of some of a, of a very good old school guy that had been dealing with composites for years. But between us, we calculated what was required. And so you had to be right. You know, you had to do it right. I suppose, again, you know, because it was different, because it was new, I had to have total belief in it. It's like all the things I do. When I get the idea and I, I push it around in my head that I hope and I think I've seen all the angles, all the, down, all the potential downsides, and I've reasoned them out in my head as to what could happen, what, you know, what would be the answer, how do we get around it, if that, if this, and so on, and then commit to it. And I had to do that with the composite chassis because actually as a backup plan to build another chassis that wasn't composite would have been very, very difficult. I mean, it would not have been the same chassis and it would not have ultimately given us the advantage that the composite chassis did so i knew if i feel that didn't work i had to go backwards and how impressed were you in ron dennis that he completely trusted you you know as he said he'd just taken over mm. mclaren there was a lot at stake and here was john barnard saying ron we're going to do something completely <laughs> different did it impress yeah. you that he was with you every step of the way well when i started you see i was we were i joined ron at project four his little team that were running formula two and three and building BMW Pro Cars, um, and that's where it all started. Now, at that time, Ron said to me, I want to go Formula One, and I said, fine, you know, <laughs> do you know what's involved? Because even then, you know, we talked the money then was nothing, but but in terms of what he was running at the time, it was big money, and I said, you know, you, do you know, you know, can you get the money? Can you do it, et cetera, et cetera? And Ron's answer was, well, let, you know, I'll pay you, now, you go away and you sit down and you design a car and I'll pay you. And if I can't get it by the end of the year, we can call it quits, but I'll pay you another year's salary. So you'll be, you know, you can find yourself another job kind of thing. I said, OK, let's start. So then I started. And my, my idea was that I've got, for the first time in my life, I've got to design a car where we don't have to race it. You know, I don't have to. I've got time, if you like. I've, if, in effect, I've got a year to do a new car. In that time, I've just done the Chaparral IndyCar, which was the first proper ground effect car at Indy. And it was a success. And it was a beautiful car. Everybody was impressed. I mean, everybody, all the people over in UK knew about it and, and so on. And so I thought, I've got to do something. I've, and, and this was my problem. I had to find new things to do because you said to me earlier about, you know, what, what feelings do you get when the flag drops and all that? Well, to be honest with you, when the flag drops at the beginning of a race, my most of my feelings are, well, that's the end of that. I can't do any more with that one. <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, can't do anything with the car now. It's off. It's started. So that was kind of my fundamental feeling. And obviously, it's nice to win, but you don't win all the time. And you have to guard against being too up when you win and too down when you lose. So you kind of try and bring this median line through, or I did anyway. Did you feel a pressure to innovate? I did eventually, yes. Yes, that was the problem. I wanted to do something new. At that time, end of 1979, 
ground effects was everything in Formula One. Ground effect underbodies and so on was the whole game. I wanted to produce a car that had bigger ground effect tunnels than any other car. Hence, I went down the idea of the carbon chassis where I could make the chassis very narrow and still retain all my torsional rigidities and so on. That was where I started from. Once I got off down that road, I actually developed the same principle of chassis at McLaren for, well, how many years? 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, six years. Six years. Mm. We changed it, but the principle was the same. It didn't change that much. So I had a real period of development rather than innovation. And it was a successful period. I go to Ferrari and I'm now faced with a similar situation where I'm talking first time Ferrari, I'm talking end of, end of 86, 87, where I am sat there. Okay, I've got to produce this factory and office and everything else, but I've also got some time now because the first car I'm going to have to be designing is the 88 car. So my thought is again, what can I do? Where's the step? Where's the jump that I can make? And the jump there was the shape of the car, the full Coke bottle thing, and the paddle shift gearbox. And so I'm now doing these big jumps in design, of innovative design. And by the time I get back to Ferrari the second time, which is 92, middle to end of 92, I'm now expected, expected to come up with something new. And to a large degree, that was wrong. I should have, on a couple of those cars, certainly the, the 1995, the Type 646, which was a low-nose little car that Berger and Lazy drove, that car was a very good car. A very, very good car. That was the one that Michael drove at the end of the... And said he could have won the championship in. Yeah. And I should have paid more attention to just developing that. But I'm now being, you know, literally phoned up by Monty Zimmerer saying, what have you got that's new? Yeah. What have you got that's new? And it's like, well, uh, uh, well, uh, <laughs> not much really. That is a pressure, isn't it? That is a real, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Pressure. And, and that's where it got to. And it, it you know, it's silly because I should have just cleaned up, a few, you know, just did the development on some of them, yeah. not, not gone for broke every time. But that period at McLaren you just described when you were winning those 31 races in the Drivers' Championship, and you were working with Prost. Was that yeah. the happiest time of your Formula One career? Um, probably, yes, probably. I mean, I don't do happy a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I'm too happy, then there's a problem, you know, and I better be looking over my shoulder. And the problem is that we'd worked up, we'd built our way up from 1981, and we'd gone through 82. We had a pretty good car in 82, ground effect car. Uh, I can't remember. What did we finish? Did we, were we second there in the championship? I can't remember now. But we had a pretty good car. 83, we had the problem because the good old Ferrari had politicked ground effect tunnels out of it, put us all on flat floors. Fortunately for the British teams, the wind tunnel was still paramount. And, you know, even though you've got a flat floor, there are things you can do with it. Ferrari didn't know that, didn't realize that. So they still got beaten by the British aerodynamics. But it had taken away much of the advantage that I had planned from the Porsche turbo engine because we started, Ron and I started the Porsche turbo engine back in 81 
with Porsche to achieve all the benefits from the carbon chassis. The carbon chassis being very narrow at the bottom, the whole idea of the turbo engine was a very narrow engine at the bottom, whereby the ground effect tunnels would go all the way through to the back with almost no bend or disturbance in them and be much wider than the tunnels we'd been running with the Cosworth. We had a model running in the wind tunnel at the time that was giving us huge numbers. I mean, huge numbers over what we'd been running before. So we were, I was really, really desperate to get that engine in a tunnel effect car. And lo and behold, at the end of 82, very, I mean, literally very suddenly in space of about 10 days, two weeks, the rules got changed and along comes flat bottom. And all that advantage of the narrow engine, the narrow chassis, etc., all out the window. John, can I just ask you quickly about a little bit about Ron in that um, we had Flavio Briatori on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and he said that he, I don't think <laughs> I don't think Flavio rates Ron that highly. And he accused him of being a guy just right place, right time. How unfair is that? Yeah, that is quite unfair, especially coming from Briatori, because Ron has a lot of good ideas. I mean, and Ron is a past master at getting a budget. And Ron's idea of a budget is, you know, 30% more than anybody else's budget. If it isn't, Ron is unhappy. You know, Ron doesn't want to go out and sort of get the same budget as Williams, for example. That's a failure in Ron's eyes. And, you know, he does that side of it exceptionally well. And he's, you know, he's a very astute guy. I mean, you know, he's got lots of ideas. I mean, you know, the thing with Ron is that I think he just, he kind of goes steaming on and, and he loses connection with people, I would say, to the point that he just, I, in a way, takes them for granted. And that's dangerous when you're relying on people to come up with the goods. And... um I would say that's the biggest problem with Ron. I mean, I, you know, I still, I still take my hat off to Ron. I mean, and I mean, you know, I, I had lunch with him what just before Christmas eighteen, just uh, just you know, fifteen months ago, and it was funny because he'd read my book and he said, "Oh, he said, yeah, he said there's so many similarities between us when we were young." He said, "If we if we'd talked about this when you were there, we'd never have parted," and he's probably right, but. It was very difficult to be the guy left in the factory coming up with the technical answers. Not only that, but you have to direct the ship technically, which means workshops and machines. You know, what are you going to do? What's the next step? What do we need to buy, etc.? It's not just designing the car, sitting there at a drawing board, drawing cars. It's how you run the whole technical side. And, you know, Ron is off there in in even at the end of when I was there, we just got a company jet. So he was whizzing off in the jet to Europe at weekends. And okay, I agree, coming up with sponsors and money and all sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, you just kind of get a bit, oh, you know, this guy's off for another weekend sort of thing in the Alps. And here I am, Saturday afternoon, you know, trying to fix a problem or come up with an idea or make another drawing in time for Monday, you know, to get them going. I mean, so that kind of, I suppose, grew between us in a way. But if I wind it on 20 years, I would be able to go back to that situation and accept it because 
I don't want to be out there partying on the weekend in the Alps just to, you know, to get in, in with some, in somebody's pocket. That's not me. I'd be happy standing at the drawing board, drawing a new card, coming up with a new idea. At the time, it kind of, you, you know, you, you kind of don't see it quite like that. And you just think, oh, you know, this is not fair kind of thing. But, you know, that's experience, really. Has he forgiven you for going to Ferrari yet? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No, I haven't forgiven myself, to be honest. <laughs> John, there's one more thing, if I may. I wanted to just, well, I wanted to check whether this actually happened. In that you mentioned Senna earlier in that you never worked directly with him. But is it true that you ended up in his apartment in, what was it, pre-Monaco Grand Prix 1990-ish? Yeah. So that did happen. Um, yeah. And just sort of what yeah. impression, how, how come? Was he inviting you yeah. around for a cup of tea or was there a nice story behind that? I was, uh, let's say at that time, I was certainly near the top of the tree, you know, and designer, technical director stakes. And Ayrton only wanted the best for him and the car he was going to drive, etc. So he, he, I talked to him on and off at different times, but he said to me, he said, because we had Friday off in Monaco, if you remember, he said, come up to my apartment tomorrow, you know, it's Friday lunchtime. He said, we'll have a bit of lunch. So I went up there, just him and myself and um, his housekeeper made us some lunch. And basically he said to me, should I go to Benetton now? He said, should I move to Benetton? And this is 19, I guess this is 19, this must be Monaco 1990. And and your te your technical him, boss of Benetton, just to just to explain yes, to people. Yes, that's yeah. right. I've now gone to Benetton. I moved from Ferrari to Benetton at the end of 89. And I said, well, to be honest with you, Ayrton, I said, I would love to have you on board. But I have to be honest and tell you that right now, we don't have the capability. Part of me going to Benetton was to lift their whole technical expertise, their technical capability, their manufacturing capability, factories, the whole lot. So on top of all that, I'm overseeing the car. I oversaw the 190, the 1990 car. I input stuff there that I know had a big effect, the whole front wing arrangement, etc., suspension and various bits and pieces. But I knew, I knew where we were and we were not ready. I mean, for example, the 1991 Benetton I did I didn't have a paddle shift gearbox because I knew that we didn't have the capability. You needed the really good electronics backup to do those projects, and we didn't have it. And so the 91 Benetton actually came out with a gear shift in it after all that messing about for a paddle shift. I couldn't do it. How frustrating and was you, that for you? Enormously. I mean, you know, the, the thing I hate is taking a backward step. And there I am, and I'm looking at it and thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. I cannot take the risk to put a paddle shift gearbox in it because I know we won't have enough testing time to sort it. We don't have a good enough electronics team, backup, whatever, association with a company to do the required electronics. I can't do it. I can't afford to do it. And I thought, thinking about all that, I mean, this is in 1990, so I'm looking forward to 91 already. So I had to say to Ayrton, I'm sorry, Ayrton, I really don't think that we're ready for you then. You know, I want to have you, but leave it for a year or two. And of course, then, then it happened. But um, yeah, I mean, a, a big decision really for me, if I'd said, 
yes, I'd love you on board, I'm sure he would have come. I'm sure he would have signed up for the next year. I mean, I had to be honest. That's that's huge. Um, and then were you <laughs> surprised? Were you surprised to see the amount of success Benetton went on to have in '94, '95? Yes, I was. Um, I would say that I'd set the whole team up technically, even to the point of doing a big new wind tunnel. Not, I mean, it was a wind tunnel at Farnborough that we'd found that was a big tunnel. We'd built a big new rolling road, but a bigger rolling road than we'd built before. And all this lot, that bought five axis machines. I'd set this factory up down in Godalming where I could, where I could bring in lots of the guys that would work for me at Ferrari and still wanted to work with me. We had all the test teams set up down there. We had, you know, it was a huge, huge step forward technically, and not least the wind tunnel and the, and the whole, if you like, whole knowledge of the aerodynamics on the car. Because when I went there, what they were doing aerodynamically was, I mean, it was just mind-blowingly way behind. And so having put all this time in and then to produced the 91 car and yes you know we had a few reliability issues with gearbox and so on but you know again it was a i couldn't you know the things i couldn't do with it that was the time of active suspension and so on i was trying to keep an active program going ahead and then it all fell apart with briatori and benetton i mean the whole contract issue is another another that needs an hour on its own really but basically i got stabbed in the back they got what they wanted from me the 1990 car ended up winning two races in 1990, uh, which they'd never done. And, you know, so it was just, I mean, and then this whole, I don't know how it all happened, but the whole walking shore, Briatori, the whole thing started to formulate. And, you know, it was quite obviously I was in the way, basically. Oh, my deal was in the way because I had a very good deal. Theoretically, going into Benetton, I own half the team. So the bottom line was they were out to screw me. I don't know how much of that was Briatori, probably a lot of it. I was probably in the way for him to do his, his money-making deals with Walking Shore. Um, I do remember having a meeting with him with Guy Ligier in a hotel at Gatwick where we talked about setting up a, you know, doing a deal with Ligier where Ligier would effectively run Bennett and Bits, you know, so effectively... There would be two teams running sort of the same car, as it were. And uh, there were all sorts of rules and regulation issues with that, which Briatori just kind of, you know, doesn't care about stuff like that. That's easily fixed as far as he's concerned. And, you know, we were talking things like that. So I guess I didn't play the game. I didn't play the game well enough for Briatori to expand his business empire. And along comes Walkinshaw, who would certainly have played the game. And, and off they went. Um, but I do think I technically put them on the map, showed them and built uh, huge steps forward in the wind tunnel area um, and literally on what the car likes aerodynamically and added to their technical capabilities, added technical staff, came up. I had a whole new factory plan that was that was drawn up and so on. I mean, it was, you know, there was uh, that was the step forward that they were looking for and um and when i first spoke to briatori because he headhunted me called me at the end of the season 89 and said come and meet the son alessandro 
you know, we want you to come and work for us, you know, kind of what you need. And I put a figure on the table. I said, well, we need this much money to do the technical, improve the technical side, which in those days was quite a bit of money. And, uh, and that was kind of fine, you know, that, that's it. You know, what do you want kind of thing? But, yeah, that's how it started. And, I, and I'm thinking I can't do this business of going to Maranello and trying to run a team from England. You know, that doesn't really work, let's be honest. So my next thing is how do I get to a Formula One team in, in, in England? And there's Benetton, you know, a team that needs a massive input technically, sort of waiting for somebody to come along and put the money in there. And that's what I did. So what they ended up with was effectively what I put in place. Just out of interest, do you, do you wish you'd ever worked with, you know, I know Patrick Head's a, a big chum of yours. Uh, yeah. Do you ever wish you'd done something together at Williams? Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> or not? Could it not have worked? Um, dear old Patrick. Well, I tell you, um, I don't think we could have worked. I think we could have worked together. But um, I think Patrick felt, I just remember, I think if you read the book, because we were together at Lola's back in, in the beginning of the 70s. And I think Patrick says something in the book of how, oh, JB was just up in the corner doing his own thing, you know, kind of, you know, just <laughs> nobody bothered him, you know, so nobody interfered, you know, kind of just let him get up with his own thing. So whether what that would have been like as a partnership, I don't know. I suspect I would have been beavering away and Patrick would have been out there because uh, Patrick's very good at the... Um, uh, at the kind of the the personnel side, the personal side, you know, Patrick's a very good raconteur, as it were, and he would have been out there doing the raconteuring, and I would have been back thinking up what the next crazy move would be. But um, yeah, I don't know. That would have been a that would have been an interesting partnership. But you see, he had Frank, and in the early days, they were successful. I had Ron, and we were successful. I still think that Formula One needs that kind of setup. It needs the commercial guy that looks after everything else apart from the technical side, and it needs a good, strong technical guy. And if those two guys are good and they work well together, I still think that's the only combination that ultimately works. Even today, when Even Formula today, One is so much bigger, you think sort of yeah. the, what the Toto Wolf James Allison relationship yeah, at Mercedes? Kind of thing, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, James Allison was one of the guys I put in the aero department at Benetton straight from university. Oh, wow. So, so he's another one that got start from me. Thank you. Um, I mean, that's right. You know, he, he, I still think, I mean, even though the, the Christmas tree underneath them would have been a bit bigger and a few more steps, I still think you've got to have that to, to make it work because you need that decision-making. And, and, you know, the decision-making has to be, everybody has to be on board with it. And it's like Ron and myself, yeah, we argued and so on, but we all we were going in the same, both going in the same direction, and both going in that direction together, and that made a big difference. And it brought a lot of success, didn't it? Yeah, I guess. Well, John, what an amazing chat! Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> how is how how is life now? Are you still is is the furniture? Life is, well, life is quite busy. I mean, I still mess about with the furniture with Terence Woodgate. Um, doing a bit of the carbon furniture stuff. Has Johnny Ive, the um, the former design boss of Apple, has he bought any more recently? Or? Yeah, well, he bought a six meter, and he had a he had a three meter, a four meter one as well. Tables. Um, talking, yeah. No, he was going to. We we designed him a console table to put all his trophies on, <laughs> and 
<laughs> and he wanted this really narrow, long table, and I had to sit down and really scratch my head over the composite side of it to make it stiff enough. And we did all that work, and then he said, oh, I've changed my mind, I don't want it. So, <laughs> so he's not getting any more out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got enough trophies, you can keep it at home in your new house. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Okay, Tom, pleasure. All right, great stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks, bye-bye. What insights from John. It's hard to pick a highlight because there were too many to list here, but I loved the recollections of his time at McLaren and Ferrari. The politics, the innovations, the drivers, it was just brilliant. And his take on why Schumacher might have struggled relative to Nico Rosberg at Mercedes was also fascinating. Definitely one to ask Ross Braun. Thanks for your time, John. It was great to catch up. And for those of you wondering, the book he refers to in our conversation is called The Perfect Car and is well worth a read if you want to dig deeper. Well, that's it for another episode, but we'll be back next week with another big name from the world of Formula One. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show, as always, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And if you're sat on social media for much of the day, as many people are right now, why not pop us a message? Or how about a question about the show? I'll do my best to answer a few on next week's episode, so you might just get a shout out. Speaking of which, thanks to Ashley Woodhouse, who got in touch to say last week's episode with David Brabham was a spine-tingling conversation. I can tell you, Ashley, it was for me too. I get just as excited hearing these stories as you all do, and I can assure you of that. Well, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and keep it flat out.